Welcome to the Arotate Podcast. My name is Richard Triggs, and today's guest is Professor Frank Gannon, Director and CEO of the QIMR Berghofer Medical Research Institute. It's fantastic to have you along today. I'm really looking forward to bringing this conversation with Frank Gannon to you. I'd not met him prior to this interview, but I found him an incredibly engaging fellow with a great story to tell, and certainly somebody who is at the absolute peak of their profession globally, and uh, that we are very lucky to have working here in Brisbane. Before I introduce him to you, let me tell you briefly about myself for those people who are new to the Arate podcast. My name is Richard Triggs and I'm the managing partner of Arate Executive and we recruit CEOs, senior leaders and non-executive directors for our clients throughout Australia. So if you have any recruitment requirements within your own organisation, I'd welcome the opportunity to have a chat to you about that. Let me now introduce to you Professor Frank Gannon. Frank Gannon was born in Ireland, and after completing a Bachelor of Science with honours, he continued his university studies, undertaking a PhD in England, and then moving to the US to do further studies in the area of biochemistry. During his career, Frank has worked all over the world, including having roles in the US, France, Germany, and now here in Australia. He's the CEO of the QIMR Berghofer Medical Research Institute and lives with his family in Brisbane. Sit back and enjoy this conversation with Professor Frank Gannon. Well, Frank, thanks very much for joining us on the Aratape podcast. It's fantastic to have you along today, and we're sitting in your beautiful facility here next to the Royal Brisbane Hospital. Perhaps uh, to begin with, you can let us know your current professional responsibilities, please. Right, good to be here, Richard, and great to have an opportunity to talk about um, QIMR Berkhofer Medical Research Institute and my role and, I suppose, the rest of life. Uh, I am the director and CEO of QIMR Berkhofer Medical Research Institute. Yes. I call it QIMR Berkhofer from here on because <laughs> we're out of time. Sure. Um, the, uh, I've been here for since 2011. Uh-huh. Um, I came and then the floods came and my first job was to close down the institute. So that seemed like an auspicious start. But we've gone, we've gone better since then. Oh, uh, very good. Um, the institute is, is a large institute by... Australian and international standards, about 700 people. Mm-hmm. Um, when talking to some politicians, I point out this is a big industry. Mm-hmm. If you had 700 people in an industry, you'd be very careful about what you're doing with it. And sure. they're, they're very supportive of us. Uh, we're unusual in that we're a statutory organisation. We were established over 70 years ago by, uh, by Queensland Health mm-hmm. and still work with through and are supported by Queensland Health. Mm-hmm. And I think this sets the tenor of what we're doing here. I can expand on that later. 
I suppose my job is to make sure that all of the parts are working together, that we know where we're going and that we get there. Mm -hmm. And as you say, uh, we will talk uh, a lot more about QIMR and your role here uh, in particular later in the conversation, but why don't we go back to where it all began and and tell us about where you were born and early life, mum and dad, etc. We may never get back to the main topic, but (laughs) but I'll do my best to be successful. I am Irish and uh, no credit for those who've worked that out already. uh, so I was born on the west coast of Ireland in mm-hmm. Sligo. Um, went to school there. Father a businessman, mother a teacher. Okay. And, um, went to university in Galway. What sort of business with your father? In? Uh, he he was uh, ultimately, it was a mixed goods store, I suppose. Okay. But that meant it had a bar, it had a record shop. It right. Had fancy goods, it had Waterford Glass, it had a travel agency. Um, so it was a good introduction to many aspects of life because as a kid you work in all of those parts Mm -hmm. meet people know how to work with people know how to appreciate what they're doing um, see perhaps what you don't want to do yourself as well as what you want to do and when you grew up uh, going to school and so on did you work in the store for your pocket money yeah I did pocket money I don't remember but yes I did (laughs) it was was a great upbringing in fact it also I think uh, has had a longer term influence in terms of my uh, interest in business. Okay. Um, my father was a politician. Mm-hmm. Um, he was an independent, which I defined as in my youth as if he's against everybody. Right. Um, but he was a popular politician. He was mm-hmm. elected the mayor of the town and um, was entrepreneurial. Went out and got businesses in and all of those things. Okay. Um, was very happy to talk at any meeting about anything, and I think I inherited that as well. Which so these were assets. Yeah. My very mother good. was more reflective and. Um, as a school teacher, she was uh, a different influence, a very mm-hmm. positive influence, a very supportive influence. Um, so I went to university in Galway. And you went to university to study? I went to study science. Okay. Um, it was one of those, I, I think I really wanted to do law, mm-hmm. but to get into law you couldn't uh, do it unless you'd got some contact, and right. the family didn't have that right contact, okay. so I said I better do something else. And I mm-hmm. see a great similarity between the rigour of law and what's right and wrong and uh, data and facts being important and mm-hmm. the rigour of science, which is, you can say the same words, mm-hmm. uh, in a different context. But uh, there's, a, there's a, I suppose, a similarity in mind. Mm-hmm. Um, I suppose, though, in science, you would typically say there is a right and a wrong, whereas in law, there's many interpretations. Well, it's funny, I said the opposite, where legal people always say, oh, no, there is a right and there's a wrong, right. and science, they keep changing their minds. <laughs> <laughs> so you can have it either way. Right. Um, I, I um, was, it was unusual that I choose to do science. There mm-hmm. was no tradition. I went to a school where the school teacher um, had retired prior to stopping to work. Right. And uh, he was not interested in the changes in the curriculum that had okay. appeared and he said mm-hmm. to us uh, boys go out and work it out yourselves right that appealed to me I think and um, but I'd have to say science was my worst subject in wow. my, my final examination so okay. that was perverse and brothers and sisters uh, a brother who's uh, an accountant uh-huh. um, and a sister who is a teacher was a teacher it, she did science she followed after me which mm-hmm. may been never mind and, <laughs> and another sister was a, was a primary school teacher okay and, uh, so they and um, brother and sister in Ireland another sister sister in Abu Dhabi as we speak right and uh, mum and dad supported you going to university to do science yeah very very much so it was um, they, they, they were strongly in mm-hmm. favor of that and um, 
and I, I was, I think, committed in any case. The, mm-hmm. So I did science in, in university. I chose to do biochemistry because, again, there was little known about that at the time. Mm-hmm. And I tend to go into the unknown area rather mm-hmm. than the beaten track. Um, did fine at university. I was involved in debates, involved in the choir, involved in anything that was going on. It was a small university and it was a great place to be at that stage. Mm-hmm. Um, when I finished there, I... Um, had decided I better do more. I had my first introduction to, to science as a, as a student, and I decided I needed to do a PhD. And uh, I chose not to stay in Ireland. There were options, um, but they were, seemed easy, so I moved to uh, England, which was less easy. Uh-huh. Uh, language was the same. Uh, television was the same. Mm-hmm. Uh, culture was different. And... Uh, I had a choice because of uh, a need to have a fellowship or a grant or a stipend between the University of Leicester and uh, the University of Birmingham. And I choose Leicester because I'm a rather strong sports fan. Right. And Leicester City were doing pretty well, but they were looked as if they might be promoted to the, the first division as it was then. Right. And, uh, so that decided it. So I went to Leicester to do my PhD. Mm-hmm. And you played uh, football as no, well? No, I'm, 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 I'm an expert. I don't play. I, <laughs> I, I, I know all of the correct moves. And right. I don't understand why they don't do it. Oh, <laughs> fair enough. And so uh, I imagine also at that time uh, the uh, depth of education perhaps in uh, England, they had you know a higher level of academia than perhaps was available locally. Uh, I wouldn't say that, and it's, that's not my characteristic Irish defensiveness. No, I think mm-hmm. the Irish education system was very good. It mm-hmm. was different. It was broad. So if uh, I studied seven subjects: mm-hmm. Irish, the Irish language, English, French, Latin, maths, physics, chemistry. Right. Uh, so you got the works mm-hmm. that I think suits me, suited me. Uh, in England, you did uh, a more constrained, okay. uh, more more in depth. Mm-hmm. Um, no, that that wasn't the case. It was um, I, the research was fairly equivalent uh, as well um, in in those days mm-hmm. in in the areas where I was able to get uh, scholarships for. It. And um, but it was an interesting time because it was in the middle of the troubles in the north, mm. and uh, being an Irish person in England at that time. Um, was an education mm. because you got a different media, different uh, viewpoint. Sure. Uh, some the cleaning lady in in the laboratory, because I worked long hours, uh, had a son in in Northern Ireland. Things of that nature were were very instructive mm-hmm. uh, along the line. Okay. And uh, what area did you specialise in for your so PhD? I, I did a PhD in in enzymology and how enzymes work. It was one of the most boring topics you could have. Mm-hmm. It was L-serine dehydratase from Arthrobacter globiformis, which was a not very interesting enzyme from a not very interesting organism. It was really basic research. Right. And it was not the sort of one that would sell well mm-hmm. in conversation. So why did you choose that then? I choose it because I wanted to learn about uh, proteins. Mm-hmm. There are different core components of life. Mm-hmm. And this was a great way to get to mm. deeply into what a protein was, how it worked, how to work with it, how to understand how it did its job. Uh, so it was it, it was laying down a, a foundation for future mm-hmm. work, and uh, again that may have been uh, appropriate at the time. Uh, it was perhaps easier to do that than now when you have mm-hmm. to prove that you're curing cancer in your first experiment. Right, sure. But it was a good start. Okay, and so where did uh, things go to from there? Well, um, so th- three years later, I uh, was finishing up. I had. Uh, 
met and um, then got married a week after my PhD to uh, uh, Mary, Irish, uh, from the same town as uh, I grew up in, but uh, I, I knew her, but not that well. And mm -hmm. then we um, got to know each other very well and we got married and uh, went to America. Mm -hmm. And again, that was part of the, the trail that you went yes. in those days. So going to America was to, um, first of all, there was a choice, where do mm -hmm. you go? Um, I recall I wrote nine letters saying, um, dear professor, wonderful, I'm interested in doing your wonderful research in your wonderful institute, um, any chance of a job? And all nine said yes. Right. Uh, and then it was a choice of where uh -huh. and, and what. And the, there, again, there were trends in the scientific world uh, that are too detailed to go into. And eight of the nine were in one trend, which mm -hmm. uh, got a Nobel Prize that year. And one was not, so I choose the one which was not. Right. The road less travelled. The road less travelled again. Right. And the, the eight of the nine were on the east coast or the west coast, and the one less travelled was in the middle in Madison, Wisconsin, uh -huh. which is a beautiful American city. Right. And, uh, the guy I worked with was a, a model again. It's an interesting one. I, I wrote to him. He, he, he said, fine, Frank, that sounds, sounds good, but you don't know me. I mm -hmm. suggest that you contact the following former people who are here and mm -hmm. see what it's like to work with them. Uh -huh. And that's been a, a lesson, uh, I think, in terms of recruitment, sure. that um, he had the, the confidence, mm -hmm. but also the understanding that uh, those coming to him needed to know what they were getting in for. Mm. So those were two great years. We were two years postdoc in Madison, Wisconsin, and then mm -hmm. a horrible thing happened. I was offered a job, and uh, when you're offered a job, at that stage, uh, I had to, in fact, say I'm not ready for it. Right. Um, I'd made a transition away from uh, silly enzymes in a silly, silly organism to working on breast cancer. Mm -hmm. uh, I wanted to do something meaningful, mm -hmm. so I started working on that with... Jack Gorski in, in Madison, Wisconsin, and um, I that was still working with proteins. If, mm -hmm. you, if there is a, a thread, and I wanted to learn more about the other components, and particularly DNA and RNA, because they were important as well. And I felt this great blank mm -hmm. in my screen. That's interesting. I mean, uh, breast cancer is very much uh, in the public eye. There's a lot of you know, substantial uh, charities around. There's a lot of uh, public education. But what was it like back then? I, I can't imagine it was the same. No, in fact, uh, I, I gave a talk recently where I um, said that I was working on sex hormones in breast cancer, and I said uh, that's a sentence I couldn't have said without outroar 20 years ago. These right. are the word sex and, and, mm -hmm. and breast in it, and, right. and, and, and people get uh, embarrassed. Sure. So um, at, at that stage, uh, the... We now know that 60% of the breast cancers are driven by estrogens, by the female mm -hmm. sex hormone. Mm -hmm. And I was working on the basic, what does the sex hormone estrogen do? Mm -hmm. what, how does it change anything mm -hmm. in the normal or even in, in breast cancer? So you're in Wisconsin. You're offered a role, but yeah. you feel that it's too early for you. Yep. Where was that role to be? It was going to be in, uh, in Detroit, which may have been right. negative, but... Uh, it had been worked out that it was a good commute from Ann Arbor, which is a beautiful little mm -hmm. uh, university uh, town to Detroit. But I, was, I wasn't ready for it. Mm -hmm. I, I wasn't trained. Okay. And so I went to... Uh, then the next question is, where do you go? Mm -hmm. You can go anywhere in the world if you're footloose and free and if you've got a good partner like Mary who's willing to move around as well. Um, so I had scanned uh, what was happening and... 
I felt that if I stayed in the States or if we stayed in the States for the next move, we'd stay there forever. Mm -hmm. And although we're really having a great time there, I was theoretical about this. I said, we'll spend some time in Europe. Then we know what Europe is like and we know what the States is like. And then we'd be able to sit down and decide where we're going to live for the rest of our lives. And of course, it doesn't work that way. But it did mean that we, I looked at where it was the right place. And there's an outstanding group in uh, Strasbourg in France, mm -hmm. which was um, doing cutting-edge work with uh, DNA and RNA. So mm -hmm. it, it was going to fulfill the gap that mm -hmm. I needed. Just to ask a question, I mean, most people are familiar with what DNA is, yeah. but what's RNA? So DNA is the, what describes the blueprint, that's the plan. Mm -hmm. um, but RNA is what's made from the plan. Okay. So the, the DNA, parts of it get uh, transcribed or tra made into something which is more mobile, can right. do things. Okay. And the RNA then gets translated into the proteins. So mm -hmm. if you look at us, we're made up of lots and lots of proteins, a little bit of lipid as well, fats mm -hmm. and things mm -hmm. like that, but mostly protein. And, and then you can see that it is the final expression of what the blueprint said. Right. But it has this intermediate step of RNA and RNA then to the protein. Right, okay, great. So the protein is the estrogen receptor that binds estrogen and switches on genes at the DNA level. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so uh, this particular faculty in France was working specifically in the space that you're excited yeah, about? Yeah, it was a, a time of... Uh, there had been a new breakthrough just around the time uh, that we're talking about. So that was... Um, 73 to 75, I was in, in Madison, Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. And uh, just in that time, there was what's called genetic engineering mm -hmm. or recombinant DNA technology. So the, the methods were worked out about how to isolate a particular piece of DNA rather than having so much you couldn't do, know what to do with it. Mm -hmm. So that isolation process had just been worked out. Um, it was subject to a lot of discussion. It was new and was it going to do damage to the world, was it environmentally challenging, mm -hmm. all of those things were, were fresh topics. Um, the laboratory in France was starting like everybody else in this area, but because I'd got skills in proteins and knew how to do with some of those things, mm. I, was, I was welcomed to establish the laboratory that was going to do this genetic engineering mm -hmm. recombinant DNA. And to have a continuum in my work, and why it made good sense, it was working on a gene which is part of the DNA, which was expressed in response to the estrogen to estradiol. Right. And that gene is our familiar ovalbuin egg white. Okay. So the egg white in a chick is massively expressed in response to estrogens in mm -hmm. the chicken. Okay. So it's a very good model system, but how do you isolate that gene, etc.? And so for the six years or so that you were there, you worked specifically in that space? Yeah, but it, it, those things uh, move... That was the, the main target. It's, it's, there were side issues, but, uh, but it was also a great opportunity to live and work in France. Mm -hmm. um, the, I said earlier on that French was one of my subjects in my final examination in Ireland, and that was extremely useful. So mm -hmm. we lived and worked and spoke French all of the time right. and uh, enjoyed the life there, learned the culture, the wine, the cheese, the food, <laughs> the way of life, the, the balance of life. So your wife was uh, a happy participant? 
Oh, she 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 was a very busy person. Like right. she, she was a teacher originally, and mm-hmm. then when she moved to France, she moved into business, and okay. she became a, um, a head of um, exports for a company. So, uh, not exactly just by standing. No, sure. <laughs> and then uh, from that point, back to Ireland again. Yeah. So then it was a question: where, Now do you toss the coins? Do you where do you go next? Have you mm-hmm. been in two places? And uh, I had a permanent position in France, so mm-hmm. there was no need to go anywhere. Okay. Uh, and the French love these are permanent. They're, they're civil servant positions mm-hmm. and every two and a half years you move up a rank and mm-hmm. you can't stop yourself even right. doing nothing it's, it's, it was amazing but that didn't suit me either so um, I I began to wonder whether my I, I was doing very well scientifically mm-hmm. I had uh, great publications coming out in the best journals because we were doing the right thing at the right time so I um, I began to ask whether anything of this had to do with me or with my environment mm-hmm. was I just being Successful, not because of my capabilities, mm-hmm. but because of uh, the the great laboratory I was in, mm-hmm. and so I decided to challenge myself with that. And again, I was offered another position in in the states. Again, this time it was in Madison, Wisconsin itself, which was a, a very good location. I said no. I'd I'd go back to where there was nothing in the area that I was uh, working in, mm. uh, to see whether I could establish in Ireland mm. something which didn't exist there, which is this new. Uh, technology, mm-hmm. which was of relevance to industry as well, whether it could have an influence on Irish industry and on training the Irish students in, in this area. So I had multiple high vaunted um, aspirations, but primarily I wanted to check whether I could do anything myself. Mm. Where, you know, when you think about that desire to uh, walk the path less travelled and not take the easy options to deliberately challenge yourself. Where does that come from, do you think? I haven't re- reflected enough on it, but there's no easy answer. Mm-hmm. Um, it was... I, I, there's, a, there's a smart answer which may not be... If things come easy to you, then you don't value them mm-hmm. as much. And perhaps there's an undercurrent of that. But I know it showed up very early in my mid-school year. When I was in high school, there was mm-hmm. an examination after three years, and I got almost 100% in geography. Mm-hmm. And normally you keep that going. Mm. I stopped doing geography. I didn't mm. do it anymore. So there's something perverse in my head that mm. that means I need the challenge to do something more, which drives me, mm-hmm. presumably, all of my life. Where it came from, I don't know. It, was a, it must have been a mutant gene somewhere. So, yeah. <laughs> but I imagine uh, you would have had some mentors around you, no doubt including your parents, uh, and perhaps some of those people said, Frank, you know, you've got these amazing opportunities here. What are you doing? And were there other people around you who are saying, no, 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 you know, go for, go for where your heart is? Yeah. Um, it's a strange thing, but uh, Australia is very strong on mentors, mm-hmm. and there's a presumption that you have nearly a cohort of mentors. Mm-hmm. Uh, not in my world around the world maybe Mm. that's because I moved too much Mm -hmm. Um, I know that when I was leaving the laboratory in Strasbourg Pierre Chambon was the head of the laboratory said Frank Frank, I didn't know you liked fishing but if that's what you want to do go right (laughs) he was not impressed he Uh thought thought it was uh, squandering yeah Um, I don't think it was really that uh, the university in Gaul were saying we need you they were a bit more confused about what would I do because mm-hmm. I had a disproportionate good CV for, for the position I was going for. So was that a, an opportunity that you created for yourself then? Yeah. Right. Effectively, they, they, they had a, a position um, that once they knew I was interested, they, it was advertised accordingly that mm-hmm. I uh, was kind of the sole qualified person. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But um, once there, I, I, I did absolutely, I, I, I said, well, I, I wrote down what I was going to do. I mm-hmm. gave myself three goals for my, in using Aussie language, I right. had three KPIs, yes. uh, although I didn't know the language then. Right. So I'm going to do this, that and the other. And uh, I, in fact, shared them with the third party who was not too interested in me, but I'd, I'd spoken to him a few times about business in Ireland. Mm-hmm. So I said, Sean, as his name was, uh, just note these. And, right. And, um, and it, that was a driver for me because I, I knew how to define failure, mm-hmm. even if success was hard to mm-hmm. achieve. So I, I, I worked. It was, it was great because there was great freedom to do there. Very little structure around me, which I think suited and allowed me to, to develop things. And that was the stage where I moved from research only to uh, research and management. Mm-hmm. And that was a pragmatic choice initially because to get funding, you had to spend, start spending a lot of time getting funding. And you, you saw how you might be able to organize something that would be a vehicle for funding. Mm-hmm. Um, I put together the National Diagnostic Center. Mm-hmm. It was not my area, mm-hmm. but I had uh, searched in the university to say, who's doing what in, the, in what area? Because there's some funds available from the Irish government. And I called a meeting of everybody who wanted to come up, and we decided... Sorry, I decided that uh, diagnostics seems like the best sell, and I, I established that and became the director of it, mm-hmm. and then, of course, managing it, mm. while you, keeping my laboratory mm. You mentioned uh, at the beginning of the conversation that you, there were some uh, aspects of your father's business that gave you a, a passion for business and commerce. When you were starting to look at moving into more of a managerial leadership role and building business and so on, did you do any analysis of your own skill set and say, okay, well, if I'm going to do this well, I've got particular areas that I need to spend time in developing to ensure that I make a success of it? I should have done that, but I didn't. Right. No, <laughs> I, 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 uh, I, I, just re- reflecting on, on, on one of your earlier questions there, when, when at a later stage I, I was uh, running a different organisation we've come to, and one of the uh, managers there says, Frank, you must never have been corrected in your life because you just believe you can do things. Right. And it was a half compliment, half challenge. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but but I, I think, uh, I, I, I would say that if anything, my parents gave me enormous, if not exor- exuberant, self-confidence. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, no, I didn't go into that reflection. I, I thought, uh, and I would have to say, and this is not arrogant, I, I usually prefer to make my own analysis rather than reading what others are doing and see what's right for the situation that Mm -hmm. I'm in or the organization I'm in, Mm -hmm. uh, which, again, is uh, not the correct way of doing things. Right. So you spent about seven years uh, in that role? No, 13. Oh, 13, okay. So we were in in Ireland from 81 to 94. Oh, yes. um, That that was a transition from a university researcher, Mm -hmm. uh, group head... Um, running the National Diagnostic Centre, getting funds. There were zero funds in Ireland. Like You can have little funds, but mm. there was zero funds. Like mm-hmm. The government had run out of money, so there was no money. So I had to be very active in the European uh, funding possibilities, mm-hmm. and uh, I was very successful with that and got to understand how it worked. So I was frequently in Brussels at meetings um, on behalf of Ireland because, uh, again, it, it, there weren't many who were aware of all that was going in the European as well as the Irish research scene. Um, and uh, 13 years later, and two daughters later, right. um, we'd reached a stage where, again, everything was going wonderfully well. Mm-hmm. They, they, everything was, the house was there, the girls were there, the mayor was working, all was doing well. 
and um, and then I got a tap on the shoulder at one of the meetings in Brussels saying we think you might be a good guy for this job mm-hmm. and I I hadn't been looking for it people had come to me every now and then and say would you be interested in, in going here there and when you're working on the west coast of Ireland on a wet afternoon with no money for your laboratory and you're wondering where the funds are going to come for the future right. you pay attention to it Sure. Uh, but this was different because it was to be the head of the European Molecular Biology Organization EMBO which is effectively a European Academy, mm-hmm. about a thousand members. I'd been elected a member um, just in my transition from France to Ireland, um, so I was. I knew the organisation. I was in awe of it, and uh, they asked me whether I'd um, apply for this, and I did. It was an unusual interview process. I was interviewed in three different countries by three different people, and. Uh, I was at the same time giving a lecture tour that happened to coincide with those places, so okay. it was, it was uh, unusual. So fortuitous. That, it was fortuitous. It was, it was the way you plan things. Right. If you have to do, it, it, it worked out. Um, so that was a big choice then, because uh, leaving Ireland, uh, leaving Galway, leaving the university, leaving all the friends, the daughter's friends, mm-hmm. Mary's friends. Um, we had long walks on the seafront before we decided to do it. But ultimately it came back to, uh, I was 45 at the time, doing what I was doing in, in Ireland for another 20 years or so mm-hmm. seemed like a, a hard call and perhaps maybe not achieved significantly more. Um, I had achieved the three KPIs, I mm-hmm. bother you with them, but they, they, right. had, they had been boxes ticked and... Uh, and uh, so we, d- we decided to take the plunge and move to Heidelberg in Germany. Mm-hmm. And so this was an organisation standing outside of, you held in you know, high reverence, and then uh, you went in to actually run the show. Exactly, yeah. Right. And, uh, one of my good friends said, well, Frank, if you're there for five years, it'll take that long before they realise that you've ruined it, so you're OK. <laughs> that's I've, the kind of friend you need, that, isn't it? That's some good uh, ground, grounding <laughs> fans. But it, it, was, it was a fantastic org- is a fantastic organisation. But in addition, it had a laboratory. So it, it had established itself as a, as a networking and training organisation around Europe. Mm-hmm. And it had, then it established a high-end uh, laboratory, which is ranked top in the world, top 10 in the world, depending on how you count things. So again, I was in awe of that. And my research uh, on the west coast of Ireland, doing anything I could with any funds I could, was, mm-hmm. was uh, not comparable. Mm-hmm. So um, if you've got the thread of my life, this is a great opportunity. I've sure. got double challenges. I have to walk into this organisation that had been run by a hero for 20 years, uh, he, he was running with a small team, and uh, so I, I, I reflected on it, and I thought it, it could be doing so much more. It mm-hmm. was doing perfectly well what it was doing, but it could do so much more. So um, that was uh, what I set about doing for the next 14 years. We expanded our activities uh, massively. Um, we established uh, new uh, systems for young early career researchers. We established uh, assistance for people in laboratories in peripheral member states. Mm-hmm. We expanded the number of member states because it was a, an intergovernmental organisation. So each government had to decide to join it, and then then we worked on it. We expanded our activities from Europe to the world. We expanded into science and society discussions. And so there were lots of things which, mm. if you stood back and look at the instrument you were given, mm-hmm. as, as I did, well, hey we can do this, this and this, mm-hmm. and then worked towards building it up. And, mm-hmm. uh, and that was a, a very exciting time. We started 
two new journals. Uh, one of the journals had a, a major aspect on science and society. I was the founding editor of that. I conceived it, and I wrote editorials every month. So I wrote over 100 editorials, mm -hmm. different topic every month, uh, mm -hmm. a thousand words, and I gave myself an hour to do that every time. Right. And uh, I wrote it, it was edited, but uh, it was it was pretty final version. So that was, that was uh, magnificently uh, challenging, and dealing with 26 different countries, mm. men visiting, men getting to know the cultures of what was their drivers, what were their problems, what mm -hmm. were their complaints, dealing with their politicians, because all budgets had to be passed unanimously. Right. I doubled the budget in, uh, in my time there, so chip by chip got it up and up so that so there was in so the, every aspect and then uh, connecting with the EU was mm -hmm. another important aspect um, the EMBO had been a great organization outside the EU and not sure what to do with it in fact perhaps looking down on it and the world had changed so I'd, I'd brought it closer and uh, one of the good things we did at the end was we uh, set up a, a campaign to establish what now is called the European uh, Research Council and that gets billions of years every year now from the EU mm -hmm. into this independent separate organisation, not into EMBO um, but that was, that was uh, an important part of it. Mm -hmm. And you raise a, a point I was going to ask a question around. With such diverse uh, geographic reach and the various cultures that were not only part of your own internal team but external stakeholders and so on, how did you uh, develop the skills or the right orientation to ensure that you were able to manipulate your own leadership style to suit the culture and the occasion yeah it's um sorry the the um i'm not quite sure quite honestly mm -hmm. um i do believe i learned from my parents how to read a room mm -hmm. and the the politician in me would would uh, see what the audience was uh, would understand their sensitivities what um, I deal in a very transparent manner with people to find out what really is going on, what, what can they, and, and they tend to open up to me and, and share their problems. I remember a, an absolutely uh, wild meeting in Italy because they were so furious about everything and, um, and it was a great open debate about what we were doing, what we were not doing, what we should do. It was an example of going into Croatia, which was not a member state, mm -hmm. trying to convince them that it was a good thing to invest in science. So, so there, there are different aspects, and mm -hmm. it also brought me then into, into the global side, because um, the EU had asked me to analyse what they were doing in China. Mm -hmm. It was after Tiananmen Square. Science was a way of building up contacts again, which uh, they thought were desirable. I was sent to review what they were doing, make recommendations, and... I did, and um, two years later they came back and asked me, "Okay, would you would you now implement these?" Right, and uh, and that that was when I was when I was in in uh, Embo. Uh, sorry, when when I was in Embo. Yeah, so the, so that um, the review was before I went there, and then right. So um, so it was. I, th I think a lot of person to person skills are mm -hmm. required in all of these jobs, and mm -hmm. uh, 
being Irish, I was lucky to have a lot of those. Right. And so you're running this global organisation that is, uh, you know, at the forefront of what's happening in your particular industry, and then you go back to Ireland again. Yeah, there, there is this recurrent theme. <laughs> so, so there are two parts to this. You can imagine, first of all, I, I, I was becoming comfortable. I'd, I'd gotten to know how to run it and, and, and all the related to it. Um, but there was also, I had at the back of my mind... Uh, the desire to return and do something in Ireland. Mm-hmm. Um, Ireland was a changed place by then, and um, I, it, it coincided with the girls had finished school in Germany, uh, Mary had finished work, and it seemed like, uh, and the dog died, so was, okay. everything was, was aligned. Right. And then I'd, I'd kept my laboratory going while I was in, in Heidelberg, mm-hmm. and uh, in fact, we did better and better, and again, in my final year, we had two major papers in the best journal, so I, I, I felt vindicated that mm-hmm. we could do that as well. Um, but uh, so the choice was to go back to Ireland as a researcher, um, and then the I was well in good contact with the the government um, for every reason as the head of EMBO as well. And there was the possibility of being the chief uh, scientist, mm-hmm. uh, or there's been the possibility of being the head of what's called Science Foundation Ireland. Mm-hmm. Now, SFI, Science Foundation Ireland, is a combination of funding for all areas, from telecommunications, information technology, energy, life sciences, medical sciences, devices, the whole range. And it had been established about 10 years previously, and I was on the board when it was established. And the aim was to uh, upgrade the quality of science in Ireland because that was a gap in the offering that Ireland had to industry. Mm-hmm. So I had, a, I had a conversation with the Minister for Health at the time uh, about this dilemma I had about, you know, I was, I was ready to come back um, and uh, what should I do? And um, she said, well, I, th- I think we should do it, go for the SFI because... Chief scientific advisors um, don't have as much influence as those who are guiding the funding, which is mm-hmm. an interesting perspective. Simultaneously, there is a, there are operational possibilities in Australia because I was as the head of EMBO, I was on a number of boards worldwide, including uh, at UQ at the IMB. So I was I knew Brisbane. I'd been mm-hmm. over a number of times and got to know the leadership there. And uh, and there there was a transition happening, so it was a question as to whether I was interested or not, and that was again a long discussion. But I decided no, it was time to go back uh, to do something in Ireland. Mm. Um, yeah. And having left and returned to Ireland a number of times, um, it sounds like a funny way to ask a question. But um, how much of it was selfish reasons in terms of really interesting job? It's getting back close to friends and family, and and so on, and how much of it was uh, sort of a nationalistic desire to advance your home country? Yeah, it's an interesting... I, I, I would probably say more the latter than right. the former. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but it also... It, it, it wasn't uh, blind in the sense that um, I could see that Ireland and, and remain very committed to Ireland being a success um, and that success was going to come through industry, mm-hmm. and the industry was going to come through high-tech industry, and high-tech industry was coming through research. So a lot of threads in my career were coming together in that. In fact, when I was at, uh, at EMBO, I was also the uh, chief scientist in, in EMBL, in the laboratory side, 
and I brought in technology transfer and uh, entrepreneurship and things of that nature because they weren't doing it because Mm. the best laboratories felt it was unnecessary. Now Mm. it took them 10 years before they were absolutely flying at it as well but but so so bringing that combination was important. I remember in one of my first um, uh, interviews when I was appointed in as the director of director general of Science Foundation Ireland, I, I used a phrase that I've used ever since. I said I wanted to have research with consequences, mm-hmm. and the first step was to do research which was of high quality because otherwise there'd be no consequences. Mm. But if you just do research full stop without consequences, then it's it's not a fulfilled action. Mm-hmm. And uh, that, that's why the position at SFI was, was ideal. Uh, we were supporting excellent researchers who were, doing, who were selected by international panels for their research qualities. And the job then was to create a culture whereby they would work with industry and uh, have the mutual benefits. And that, that really worked extremely well. Um, again, a lot of little ploys to drive it. I had an annual census where I'd ask everybody to receive money. Mm-hmm. Um, are you working with industry? Mm. It was amongst a hundred other questions. Mm. But you know, where did your people go? What do you do? What do you publish? But were you working with industry? And, mm. and that that normalized it. And then at an annual meeting where we'd bring them all together, we'd have some industry people there. Mm. So without distorting the, the scientific research quality drive, it was possible to add that extra dimension. Mm, that's interesting. We um, are certainly well familiar with our CRCs here in Australia. Is that um, a, a common thing internationally? I have no awareness. Yeah, the CRC is, is similar to one of the programs that we had, mm-hmm. um, which is called something else, which is based on something which is in the National Science Foundation in the States. They were called CSETs in our Centre of Science, Engineering, Technology. Uh, it's the same idea of bringing uh, closely together industry and researchers but Mm. in fact when I analysed what we were doing we were getting better return on investment by giving support to excellent researchers uh, doing things which they wanted to do. Mm. Um, These laid the seeds, uh, like for instance um, Intel, the company, were working with 18 different Irish groups Mm. which would not be obvious and some of them were on on quantum uh, computing which was really in the future but they were Mm. very good specialists in that area. Mm. Now, you wouldn't put a CRC on quantum computing because in industry, well, that's too early. Right. And yet what Ireland needed to do uh, was to have that, those skills, such as industry, when they were looking for their next wave of investment, mm. would say, hey, these guys know what we're talking about. Mm. And they talk friendly, so it would mm. be possible. So I, I, I recognise the benefit of having the close links, but I think it's not the, the sole pathway by any manner of means. Mm-hmm. And then in 2011, uh, after sunny Queensland. Yeah, so the um, well, the first thing that happened was what uh, is uh, called the GFC yes. in most places, but it's not called the global financial crisis in Ireland because it was a very local financial crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, everything was stopped. The, the world crumbled. Um, fantastic uncertainty about what was going to happen next. Um, discussions with ministers about funding became very fractious because um, you were saying give funding for research and they were saying I need funding for beds for hospitals mm-hmm. and who do you guys think that you are now although the discussions were tough they were nonetheless uh, again uh, intelligently driven um, and my line to them was okay you believe there's going to be a, a recovery mm-hmm. what are you going to be doing in, at, at that point what are you going to be able to recover to mm-hmm. and uh, I strangely pre-announced my uh, departure before I knew where I was going. Right. 
because I, I could see that it was the right thing for me to do and I also wanted to give them a chance to get somebody in mm. to, to take over. So uh, I, I worked out for a year. I, was, uh, I, I remained as, as the director general and um, they, in fairness, um, when they came to the budget at the end of the year, they did increase the funding mm. for, for research and for science in that last year when everything else was cut. Uh, so that was a, that was good and satisfying. Uh, in the meantime, the the idea of going to Australia was very attractive. Mm-hmm. Um, Brisbane, I knew from my uh, mm-hmm. presence on the boards here. Um, the people I knew, Mary knew people as well because we'd been here um, at board meetings and holidays and things of that nature. Um, the lifestyle is is an obvious uh, big plus, um, but the the institute was also a big plus. Mm. Um, John Hay, who recently died, which is very sad, um, he was the Vice-Chancellor of the University of Queensland when I was on the board. He had uh, retired as Vice-Chancellor, he was the Chair of, of QIMR as it was then, and he um, knew that I was available because I'd put the word out mm-hmm. and um, in- invited me and it was, uh, it was, it was perfect in every way. Um, a great institute. Um, the new building was going up at the time. The um, there was a lull in the situation after the smart state. There was a mm. little bit of uncertainty about where what was happening. So the challenge aspect was there. Mm. Uh, I'd never run a medical research institute before. I'd been in a researcher. I'd been in a university person. I'd run funding agencies, uh, lots of those things, but not actually managing a cohort of researchers. Mm-hmm. And so, when you stepped into the role, what was the mandate? Um, again, um, the mandate was to was not explicit. Um, okay. In fact, um, this may sound again arrogant, but uh, I said I don't do KPIs, <laughs> except for the three that you said for yourself. Uh, uh, yes. Yeah. So what I did instead was um, that the, the the board, the council was and are very tolerant. Uh, I didn't want to get hem, uh, hemmed into. KPI which mm. I'd achieve and would ruin the, the totality. So I, I um, wrote, uh, after a delay, I wrote a, a roadmap for the Institute in which I sketched out what I thought the Institute should be trying to achieve and what that might look like and mm-hmm. some steps about how to get there, but not very prescriptive. So it was uh, a balanced scorecard approach rather than a KPI mm-hmm. um, because if you gave us a KPI, we're going to publish 500 papers in a year, mm. you tick that box and you did nothing else, that mm. wasn't research with consequences. Mm. If you said we're going to set up uh, spin-off industries, 10 of them, mm-hmm. you probably tick that box and probably all failures. So there, it, it was a holistic uh, approach that um, maybe intuitively I felt was that because I hadn't still haven't read the books that I that, that was needed, so I, I the, the the council was um, the board equivalent, uh, were very tolerant of that, and I, I think understood what I was doing. I reorganised structures here, mm-hmm. I um, re re-emphasized some aspects. Uh, I consolidated some things which were excellent that needed to be recognised to be excellent. Um, two things that I brought in which were new, which at the time. Uh, I had to write papers for the council say, I mm-hmm. think we should do this. One was a, an Asian strategy. So in 2011, I brought in an Asian strategy for QIMR. Uh, it was QIMR at the time. It was before uh, we had the, the philanthropy uh, support from Clive Burkhofer. Um, 
So an Asian strategy, which was pointing out what seemed obvious from the rest of the world, that Australia's got a geographical location that's challenging, mm-hmm. but it's a geographical location that is an advantage. Mm-hmm. And it should use the advantage by being in the same time zone almost as, as China and related areas, but not an extremely long flight to to those areas. Plenty of extremely good researchers there, more and more. Mm-hmm. And, and why not recognize that and build on it? And the second... Uh, Platform that I brought in at that stage was commercialization. Uh-huh. Um, it wasn't part of the tradition here. There, there was some going on. Uh, every, everything is that you never invent anything. So you, when when uh, when looking around, I thought we must be able to do more. We've got um, six or seven hundred researchers doing cutting edge research. Mm-hmm. Uh, there must be new things being found that must have value. And uh, I recognize that the first step in that is to create a culture, which means talking, normalizing, giving examples, supporting, putting some support mechanisms in place that will encourage people to not just have the research but have the consequence. Mm. And, um, and with time, I've, I've refined one of the, the standard sayings here in, in our areas. We work from bench to bedside. And the right. message is that... Uh, and I now disagree with that. I say that that's too simple. You have to mm-hmm. go from bench to business to bedside. Mm-hmm. Nothing can, very few things can move directly from bench mm-hmm. to bedside. So B to B to B is what I keep repeating right. about here. And B to B to B is, is the way that I, the pathway that we really have to do. Mm-hmm. So you have to get all three Bs right. Mm-hmm. You have to have the research side, the bench, absolutely top. You have to provide the right facilities for that, the right intellectual encouragement, the right connections between people. You have to then have the, the business awareness of, to see how to do that. And we've restructured that a number of times here so that we, we get it more, more appropriate, uh, I think, correct now. And you also have to have the strong links with the, with the bedside, with the clinicians. And uh, Three of our four programs have clinicians as their head, active mm-hmm. clinicians, a number of others sprinkled through the operation. 60% or 70% of the research groups have collaborations with uh, with clinicians. So we have really embedded the the whole process in, mm-hmm. in our organisation. Mm-hmm. So you come in, you undertake a process of realignment of culture, bringing in some new strategies in terms of how to take uh, the organisation forward. Six years down the track, if you had to hang your hat on a couple of key achievements and say these are things I'm most proud of here. You know, what, what would you highlight? Interesting, because uh, there's some great research that um, I'd be very proud of, but I don't feel full ownership of, because mm-hmm. these are the people. This is a very personal-driven activity. Mm-hmm. And uh, I recognise at the start and, and said it to the people, um, you don't work under the authority of anybody. It's your own authority. They, the researchers here have to get their own funds and to be their own successes. What we have to do is to make a picture out of the pixels mm. and to, to show how that works together. So I, I, I think one aspect then would be putting together structures that have allowed that to happen because I think that um, you could have isolated um, bodies of, of individuals who are working to on their own perfectly but nothing together. Mm-hmm. I think that's one aspect. I think the second aspect is we have very clearly aligned ourselves with the B2B2B aspect. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've had some significant successes in attracting uh, pharmaceutical industries to be supportive of our work and to provide funds for us and for our work. 
and that's been very important as well. I think we've made a lot of effort and progress in uh, dealing with the community. Um, the QIMR, when I came here, if you asked a taxi man where to bring me to QIMR, and there wasn't visibility. Mm. Uh, we're more visible now. I think we're better at getting our multiple excellent stories out mm -hmm. uh, through the media and through engagement at any opportunity. We had very successful um, population-involved activities such as the right to conquer cancer and the mm -hmm. weekend to end women's. And those were in a connecting with a, with a different group uh, than was previously the case. And uh, that has given rise, as one would want, not just from the support, which is important because we are ultimately a state uh, body. We, we leverage the funds from the state sixfold, so we're, we, 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 we use the money well. But a part of that is getting the community behind and getting philanthropy uh, mm -hmm. support as mm -hmm. well. And six years into the role, somebody who likes to remain challenged, uh, uh, what are you excited about in the future? You know, what are the next six years look like? Well, somebody would say that maybe you should stop at some stage, Frank. And, uh, <laughs> you seem to have plenty of petrol left in the tank. Yeah, Duracell is still working. <laughs> no, I, I, I think that we have... Uh, the fact is we're in a very difficult situation. Mm -hmm. Australian researchers are in a very uh, challenged um, environment. Uh, funding opportunities are very difficult. Uh, one, in, one in six applications are successful. Mm -hmm. So if you're... If you're a researcher, and this uh, old organization depends on it, if you're a researcher and you have to uh, get your own funds and you've only a one in six chance of winning that mini lotto, mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of um, support required, um, culturally support of the, the individual as they're challenged by not getting a grant and does that mean mm -hmm. that they're not good? Uh, we're challenged with the financial uh, requirements to do that. So... There is unfinished work to be done there, but there's also uh, the growth of the uh, business side. We've got some uh, plans which we think are very appropriate, and not just for us, but for others, mm -hmm. that we, we I'd really like to bring through to fruition, and mm -hmm. a few more years should, should allow that to happen as well. Mm -hmm. So just going back to the constraints and the challenges around that, uh, I'm not an expert in this space. So, you know, what what are some of the uh, the roadblocks that need to be uh, dealt with? Do you think? I, well, I think that the it, it is a core matter of, of insufficient funding, and once there's insufficient funding, you get some randomness in the situation. And is that because the funds simply aren't available, or because somebody's decided to direct those funds elsewhere? No, the 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 Australian government spends good money on on research mm -hmm. um, and. The NHMRC, the National Health and Medical Research Council, which is the source, and this is a difficulty for us, the sole source at the moment for funding for us, uh, spends $800 million a year. So that's not a small amount. Mm -hmm. um, and by world scale, it's, it's not, it's not a, a too, too little. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it could be more, but in fact, statistically, it could be twice that. But that's not, it's, not, it's not an irrelevant amount. Mm -hmm. The problem is that um, all of those in all of the systems, the universities, uh, the research institutes, are all looking for the same money. Right. And the competition is therefore fierce. Mm -hmm. 
Um, in other countries, um, if you take the United Kingdom, you've got uh, different medical research, in, you've got medical research council, you've got um, a more scientific council, you've got the Wellcome Trust that can be supportive, you've got charities like Cancer Research UK, mm-hmm. you've got the EU at the moment, mm-hmm. uh, and, and all of those diverse sources means that if you don't match the requirements of whoever is judging you on that day in one operation, mm-hmm. you may in elsewhere. Right. It, in, in Australia, it's become funneled through a single uh-huh. um, spectrum of choices, mm-hmm. and uh, everybody going through that door, you, you get uh, mismatches. Mm-hmm. And so, I imagine one of the dangers of that is that if I'm a young researcher and I want to get on with the job, if I can't get access to what I need here, I'm just going to go elsewhere. That's the real problem, and that's mm-hmm. the that's the the quasi tragedy. That's why I and the institute spend a lot of time in trying to influence uh, national, local uh, policy because mm-hmm. it, I I understand that 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 is what has to change um, for the researchers. It, it drives them to work really really hard mm-hmm. to have the highest standards. But there's a there's an interesting cost um, involved in doing the best research. It goes mm-hmm. up. Mm. And if you've got less money when you want to do the best research in order to be competitive, you can spiral down. Mm-hmm. Now, so we put in in place schemes to, particularly for the early stage researchers, it was one of, again, you asked me what I was pleased with. That was one thing that mm-hmm. I established, which uh, gave five years of salary guarantee for those who had their first independent position, mm-hmm. which is the rockiest part, the, the most uncertain um, that um, is is in place. We've provided extra assurance for those who are up and running mm-hmm. because they can fall off the wagon mm. to pick them back up. But it's it's a it's a, a huge challenge with lots of uh, internal pressures and frustrations when when things don't work out mm. right. Mm. This podcast, one of the main uh, motivations is for those who are aspiring to reach their full career potential, uh, to learn from those who have walked the path before them. You've mentioned a number of times you haven't read the books, you haven't really had the official sort of mentors, etc. So if you were talking to younger people who had aspirations to achieve, you know, like uh, similar outcomes to you, what have been some of the key lessons learned along the way that you would share with them? Well, first of all, I think each individual is different, and I, I do share a lot with the people here, particularly in, in those in the delicate phase. I've established a whole system of mentoring here, so everybody has got a mentor in the system, mm-hmm. and I've got three who were randomly chosen and allocated to me. Um, and when, what I look at is what is their potential, what do they really want? Mm-hmm. And some really want to be a fantastically successful researcher more than anything else. Mm-hmm. Others want to have a different life balance. Some feel that they've done all they can in this area, they've ticked that box and want to move elsewhere. Mm-hmm. So I really would tailor make it to know what you want yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't be fooled for too long with having to follow the next inevitable step. Mm-hmm. I think that's an excellent point and I mean there's certainly in my role of meeting with very senior executives who are looking to advance their career, often they're wanting the CEO role without really thinking about well do I actually want this or not. It's kind of expected of me by society and so on that that is the logical career path but it doesn't necessarily mean that's the right one. Yeah, and I, I suspect you get found out very quickly if it's mm-hmm. not the right one, mm-hmm. or you're not as happy as as those who are the right, mm-hmm. the right uh, square in that square. Um, I was, it just reminded me of, of one conversation I had when I was in, in Heidelberg, 
Um, I, I have and I still have a research group that I still have here. Um, and then I, annually I had a one-to-one -one meeting with each of those in the research group, not about what the research was doing, but what they were doing, where their careers was. And I had this uh, French researcher who was rather a black character who was always wondering about things can go wrong, right. if it worked to be bad. So I, I, I had this uh, conversation and I said to him, Dominique, like, I don't think you're going to be happy doing research. I said, no, it's a waste of time. And yet you're terrific, you know everything. You're, yeah, I, I'm pretty good, yeah. So, so he was French. And uh, so I said, I think what you should do is go into patents. Okay. Because that would be close to science. You'd be able to say everything that's wrong, and you'd be, be delighted. You'd be well paid for telling people what's wrong, right. what's been done before. And he looked at me aghast and said, I would never wear a suit. <laughs> <laughs> and five years later, he was in the patent office. All right. And I, I feel that was that was perhaps a, a rare example, mm -hmm. and I'm sure I got it wrong in others, where mm -hmm. where um, knowing the individual and adjusting the the advice accordingly. Mm -hmm. I think that if you're moving up the ranks, you do need to have a lot of self confidence, mm -hmm. and there's a border between self confidence and arrogance that I'm sure I transcend every now and then. I apologise for yeah. that, but but it is something that that you have to if you don't have self confidence. Mm -hmm. Uh, then you will fall back to some of the examples. You will be looking at what is the right way to do this, mm -hmm. what have others done. Mm -hmm. And each situation as each individual is different. So QMR Berghofer is a different institution and institute than any of the others. It's got different history, different people, different emphasis, different connections, different role in the, in the whole context of Brisbane and Queensland. Mm -hmm. And you have to recognise that and you won't get an off-the-shelf answer about mm -hmm. what does that mean. Mm -hmm. we, you mentioned prior to me starting recording that you head back to, the, uh, to Ireland about once a year to catch up with friends and family and so on. Do you envisage your career will take you back there permanently? That's one of the hardest questions, and Mary and I spend all of our time talking about this. Right. Um, in fact, uh, we're we're very German as well. Okay. Uh, and we have a daughter in Germany. Uh -huh. uh, our other daughter is now in Brisbane, which is great. Uh, but she had been in Germany before, and they went to school there. Mm -hmm. uh, Mary loves Germany more than I do. I love Ireland. She's Irish more than she does. Mm -hmm. We both love Australia fantastically. So I, th I, th I think that... Um, if it was a referendum, we'd end up in Australia. All right, fair enough. And last question before I let you get on with your day. Uh, we've talked a lot about business, we've talked a lot about your career, but what about when you're not working? What are the kind of things you enjoy doing uh, to keep life exciting? I am a sports freak. Right. I uh, just uh, am disgracefully engaged in, in following all sports. Okay. Fact, it's, it's nearly a ploy to, in, to get involved in, in a country. So when I went to Leicester, I mentioned that I, Leicester City was mm -hmm. my team. I was there every Saturday and therefore I did deserve to, to feel good last year and, and I feel very bad this year in right. how, how they're doing the EPL. Uh, when I moved to Madison, Wisconsin, it was the Green Bay Packers, mm -hmm. uh, American football. When I moved to Strasbourg, it was Strasbourg. We won the, the Cup one year, I said we. Mm. Uh, always in Ireland, I've Sligo Rovers. And I, when I went back to Ireland, that was strong. Then there's also Gaelic football that I had to follow mm -hmm. for Sligo and, and Galway as time went on. And then went to Heidelberg. And then that was a matter of uh, getting involved in, in Formula One interest. We always mm -hmm. had an interest in Formula One, Mary as well, when we were in France. So the so German drivers were good there. I, 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 I literally put a, a pin in the map, uh, right. a compass, to see where was my nearest soccer team okay. so that I could adopt it. And then going back to Ireland again, rugby became important over the years. And mm -hmm. uh, when I was in Dublin for my position there, it became a, 
a, a Leinster and a Connacht fan. And now that I, when I moved to Brisbane, I became a Reds fan, and a member of Reds. And right. So you can see I have an accumulation. So my Monday mornings are, are very complex. Sometimes <laughs> I cannot hear the news in case I get the result before I'm right. ready to watch it. Uh-huh. So that's an important part. For me. Sure. And so uh, uh, the Reds are your chosen team here versus... Uh, you know the uh, AFL or the or the football and so on. No, I, I, I've I've gone to the Broncos a number of times. I really enjoy mm-hmm. that. Clyde Burkhoffer is is a, is a great guy and whom I got to know very well in in and around his, his significant uh, sixty million donation, which is mm-hmm. a, a great model for people who have the resource to to be generous and to make a real difference. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's a, a Bronco fan, and I have really enjoyed going to those games with him and sharing the pain and uh, <laughs> but the AFL has hasn't hasn't captured I went to one game and it, it wasn't great right the lions were, <laughs> they won too easily can you imagine that so the game was over after 15 minutes I yeah. must have picked the unusual right. but we've gone to the cricket as well like, okay. uh, whatever's going <laughs> yeah I agree well look uh, Frank I really appreciate you taking this time out of your day to have a chat to us and a uh, fascinating conversation have a fantastic afternoon thank you very much Thanks again for joining me on the Arate podcast. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Frank. I certainly found him to be a fascinating man and somebody that I'm looking forward to speaking with more in the future. I hope you have a fantastic week and I look forward to having you along to future Arate podcasts. Mm-hmm.